0: on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on
1: live shows for any of these events. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.
0: I'm a feminist, but if I had to body swap with Megan Draper in Mad Men when her marriage with Don Draper was really good, or Sylvia Rosen, Don Draper's neighbour, he was having an affair with behind Meghan's back, I would choose Sylvia because all the subterfuge made it hotter.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat>
0: it was so much hotter. It was all this sort of afternoon delight and sneaking around and, like, arguing. One time he kept her in a hotel room for ages... <laughs> and like, that sounds like kidnapping <laughs> What well, kind of wasn't I mean she was agreeing to it because it was like a hot game oh right role but it was, play yeah it was oh. like a little bit like a sort of power play thing right he said you have to wait for me all day until I choose to come back and then he took her book <clears throat> he took her book yeah was it the Kama Sutra or was it the book? no it was just like it was some kind of novel of the year that she was reading I can't remember what it was but it, it, it was something like Erica de Jong's Fear of Flying or something like this that this isn't
4: turning me on at all no. Watch the episode. Watch the episode. If you take, if you take my book, I'll get really angry.
3: I
0: am reading that. I mean, what's nice is that we will never argue over a fictitious misogynist Don Draper because you won't find him hot anyway. Oh, no, absolutely not. He sounds
4: awful. I've never watched Mad Men. I think you're more of a Roger Sterling woman. Is this a good thing? Because I don't know yeah. what she's talking about. Um, am I watching? Someone's shaking their head like, "Nah." He's
0: a, He's older. One, Roger. He's older, but he's he's suave. Well, How how much older are we talking here? Fifties? Is he fifties? He says things like, "When God closes a door, He opens a dress." <laughs> These are terrible. <laughs> They're all terrible. I'm saying I'm aroused by it, not I approve of it. Those are different things. <laughs> and who who opens
4: a dress? <laughs> roger sterling where's, where's the handle like it's a zip
0: it's, it's a zip, zip. it's a long 1960s zip where he zips the whole point jones of dress, dress.
4: it's already open we don't need to take it off
0: what it's all open oh. it's got a zip down the back no it's... these long 60s dresses and they they unzip he unzips jones dress it's open where it matters Frequently. oh i see oh i see open at the bottom yeah. part that, yeah. that guy doesn't know what he's doing Yeah. How do I get in here? It's it's not there, Roger. (laughs) He would love you if you said that. If he said, I'm gonna open your dress and you said, Roger, it's already open where it matters. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh yeah. Roger would keep you in a hotel for a week and steal all my books.
3: (laughs) That's right.
4: I'm a feminist, but
0: I think Roger would get it. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but if I had to choose between body swapping with Sylvia from season six Mad Men, the neighbour who he was cheating with, or Suzanne, his kid's school teacher from an earlier season, I would choose the school teacher because I think she was younger and hotter.
4: I there's guess, I, a, there's I, a theme I, developing with who you choose here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I just, like, I'm just I liked all the sex and stuff, but I just thought she was really kind of pretty, and I don't know. I mean, they were both gorgeous. Did uh, we co-sign this? I don't
4: know who, who these people are. Is this? No it's, one co this. It's really, this? it's very much in my
0: head. Nobody here cares <laughs> about.
4: You know. I'm a feminist, but when my mum had firemen come round to fix her smoke alarm, when I heard they were in the house, I put some makeup on. <laughs> I put some makeup on for those firemen. Yes, I did.
0: And did the yeah. smoke alarm go off?
4: <laughs> I was the only one who could hear it. Um, yeah. But, but they, they just fit the alarm and left. They didn't... Aww. They didn't, like, stay. <sighs> you could've... So then I set fire to the
0: house.
3: <laughs>
0: I'm a feminist. But in order to write this segment, I spent a large part of the afternoon on a page of glamour.com called Ranking All of the Women Don Draper Hooked Up With on Mad Men. (laughs) And they've ranked them. They've ranked them. And they've only ranked 13 of them, though, and there's way more than that. So I find it a disappointing article, and I'm going to have to write my own. way more than 13 they did like nine seasons Come wow on. And oh, this, it must have oh, been
4: 13 a season
0: constantly hooking up yeah, yeah. Oh, this what? is just they i think they've just picked their top 13 which i think is lazy <laughs> it, it,
4: it is lazy i uh, mean they
0: shouldn't be ranking women <laughs> but if you're going to rank women get it right <laughs> <laughs> you, you can rank them but just give them all 10 no, they've not. They've ordered them. they've, oh, they've not, ordered they've them. Not, oh, okay. She's a seven. No, it's glamour. It's not Donald Trump's Twitter feed. <laughs> I'd grab that. <laughs> it says things like, Bethany, brackets Anna Camp, Bethany, friends with Roger's tiger-eyed second wife Jane, was a total drip, but she existed so that we could see Anna Camp done up like fashion Barbie from 1965, and to me, this is a worthy pursuit. Wow, that's, no, that's quite harsh, actually. No, I didn't... <laughs> Mm. Written by someone called Megan Angelo, who I think was probably... I bet she's ranked Megan as number one. Let's have a look.
3: Yes! (laughs) Yes.
0: Is Megan number one? Do we agree with this?
4: Mm. Ooh, no, she's not. I'm a feminist, but when I had my induction booked for my labour, because I didn't have a natural birth, I had it induced, um, I delayed it by a day, because I'd had a pedicure booked. (laughs) I wish I was lying. And because my my, this child was so late, she didn't want to come, so I just thought, oh, let me just occupy myself. And like, it was one of those pedicures that you book on like, Groupon or whatever, and you pay for it in advance. And I was like, well, I can't do that though. I've got a pedicure booked. And actually, I planned the water birth, and I thought it's very important that I'm looking at my best. Because, you know, it would be like, you know when you go to a swimming pool, everything's on display, you know, your nails and everything. So
0: I got a pedicure done, and then I got induced. <laughs> this is a this is a personal question so you absolutely obviously don't have to answer it but I think I might have a
4: wax before I gave birth okay childbirth is the most undignifying thing by the end of it the amount of people you get rooting around down there you just don't care anymore but like <laughs> oh my gosh it's cost of thousands it was like I felt like the tape. laughter <laughs> honestly it was like this person after person coming for a viewing like honestly it, you, you you would you would think that you care about that kind of stuff but honestly by the time the 50th midwives had their hands up here you just think whatever man just get away. live from king's place in
3: london
0: the spontanea shop presents the guilty Feminists with me Deborah francis white yes host Athenica Blenew, and very special guests, Renee Davis and Heidi Regan, talking about plugging in. This is the Guilty Feminists, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Today I'm here with Athena Blenew, my co-pilot, and we're talking about plugging in, finding your network, making connections, finding a niche. <laughs> Yes, we are. Do you feel you've found your network, your niche? I feel like I'm one of those people that fits into a
4: lot of places or doesn't have a one home, Mm. you know? I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I'm like a sort of a cat. No, because cats are traitors. What? If you think I've got a cat, you don't have a cat. What you've got is a cat, but someone else has that cat too. (gasps) <gasps> you know, because when my, they're not my, with you, they're with someone else. My cats are indoor cats, though. Oh, that's a good thing what you've done there. What you've done is you've trapped them.
0: No! <laughs> they like the doors. They can go outside onto there's like a... Big patio. Yeah, that sounds like a trap to me. Um, <laughs> but but most outdoor cats mm.
4: basically wander from home to home and they get fed by your neighbour. Multiple they get fed, people, yeah. And yeah. then they, they might sleep in your house, but I guarantee you they're doing other things in other people's houses. Basically, you're a premier inn for, <laughs> for your cat. I feel
0: like you're gaslighting cat owners, because they're now looking at their cats going, do I even know you? Uh, Kind of, but
4: anyway, that's kind of what I'm like, so, yeah, I kind of own, I'm in lots of different worlds, so I'm a stand-up comedian, so I'm in, like, a kind of creative comedy world, and I'm also, uh, I've been known to do a bit of project management, so I'm kind of in that professional world too, and I've got, like, you know, like, others, I don't want to tell you about all my circles, and brag.
0: (laughs) All oh, my many and varied circles, yeah, darling. I just feel like
4: I've just kind of, and that reflects maybe like just my work history and just generally the kind of how I've meandered through life, I think.
0: I think it's hard to find your niche. Even though you're doing the right things, you can turn up at some kind of networking event and you just think, oh, God. It's like, you know, those places where you get half a glass of warm white wine and a name badge. Oh, good, yeah. And then you're meant to go in and... My definition of networking is talking to someone when you'd rather be talking to someone else. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Because if you have a good conversation, it stops being networking. Like, if you meet an old friend, you go, oh, it's lovely to see you. And then you go and huddle in a corner or you ha- find a huge connection because you're both into deep sea diving or something. It's no longer networking. Yeah. It's networking is like almost could be Woody Allen subtitles, (laughs) like in Annie Hall, where basically everything you say is, How can I use you? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think the funny thing about networking is, in my
4: experience, I've never actually networked successfully at a networking event, but I've networked by accident. Does that make sense? Mm. So when I've been outside of my comfort zone and just accidentally bumped into somebody, that's been really fruitful. When I've gone to a networking event uh, with the intention to meet someone who's useful to me, I just come out of it feeling quite dirty.
0: Mm. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. But also, like, in comedy, I think it's so easy to feel like an outsider mm. and feel like everyone else knows each other really well and they've all done the circuit together and you're just sort of... You somehow don't really fit in or you're an imposter in some
4: way. Yeah, I think so, and I think that we have a habit, and it's not a bad habit, but it's what we do is we give ourselves labels, but there's an assumption that if you meet someone with the same labels as you, they'll be the same person as you, but that's not really the case. Like, I'm not going to like you if you've got dreadlocks. Like, it's just... Especially if you're (laughs) white. (laughs) especially. Exactly. (laughs) You know, like... I had a joke, which is basically like, we don't mind you stealing black hairstyles, but, like, you know, steal the crappy ones. You know? (laughs) don't steal the nice ones, you know, get a wet perm. Um, <laughs> then I'm like, that's, that's solidarity, you know, go through what we went through, is what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you get that feeling of, I think, alienation, and you think, I'm really happy because this is my identity and I found myself, then you meet someone who's exactly like you, they know, an idiot, and you think, oh, God, this is, I've got to meet someone else now who's exactly like me, not an idiot, and these labels, actually, they're quite superficial, but... At the same time, because of oppression, we like these labels, because sometimes the only thing that binds you to someone who's like you is the fact that you have the same life experience, which can be quite negative, and then that can be quite depressing. So, yeah, it'd be nice to live in a world where we could just, like, meet someone with a heartbeat and just be like, oh, we've got something in common, rather than, like, you know, other th- layers. But I think that's why we can often feel lonely around people who we shouldn't feel lonely with. That's mm-hmm. not funny, just just my thoughts.
0: <laughs> well, they laughed. It turns out funny. Um... <laughs> Are you ready for some stand-up? Yeah. Um, yeah. Plugging in. Then please welcome to the stage the wonderful Kim Campagna. Yeah. Hello, guys.
4: We good? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's nice to be here. Like I mentioned earlier, I fit into a lot of circles. Like, I'm a black person, so I fit into black circles. I'm a woman. That's a thing, isn't it? Um, That's a thing. I'm also mixed race. I'm half Ghanaian and Indian. That's a thing, too. So I've got a Ghanaian side, I've got an Indian side, and then I've got the Ghanaian and Indian side. There's about five of us in the country. We hang out. It's very nice. Um, Two of them are my brothers, but we're... (laughs) But whatever, um, I'm, I was a project manager uh, and I worked in local government, so I was a civil servant for a long time. Um, I worked with civil engineers after that because I worked in planning, very boring I right, get into that. But I hang out with planners too, because that was another group of mine. I've got natural hair, guess what? When you're black and a woman and you've got natural hair, you're in the natural hair community. Oh my God, yeah, big, yeah, there's like four, I can see us, I can see us, yeah, 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 big up, big up, big up. But at the same time, I'm also in the hair community because some people don't have hair. <laughs> so that's a <the> community. <laughs> I'm also going grey, so give me a cheer if you're going grey. Woo! We're in a community, guys. We're in a community. And like I said, I'm also... hang out. I'm a breastfeeder. I hang out with breastfeeding mothers now. Well, just one. I've only, met, I've only met one so far, but obviously there's more of us out there. So there's lots of people out there that I need to hang out with, and I don't really want to get any more labels, because quite frankly, I'm running out of time. <laughs> What I do worry about, though, is I think that we're addicted to being connected with one another. Who's, ad- who's addicted to being, to being connected with people? Give me a cheer. You are addicted. How does it feel when you leave your house without your mobile phone? Great. Great? Are you Amish?
3: <laughs> Someone just
4: said, great. I don't feel good at all. This is how bad I feel when I leave my house without my mobile phone. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I walked out of my house, and I've patted myself down, and I realised... I've forgotten my mobile phone. I realized I didn't have my mobile phone because I felt naked. I feel naked without my phone. I can't help it. It's like leaving the house without an arm. Um, I'm really bad at analogies. I just realized that today. <laughs> anyway, I went into my house, got my mobile phone, walked out of the house, and I thought, it feels a bit cold. <laughs> like I said, I'm a breastfeeding mother. What are my boobs just all hanging out? <laughs> so addicted to my mobile phone that I thought I haven't got my mobile phone, I feel naked. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't realise I was actually naked. (laughs) I know we care about technology far too much because we all got very emotional when they released the new version of, I think it was the iPhone, and everyone was like, oh my God, oh my God, that was a beautiful and moving product launch. It really was. (laughs) It really was, but excuse me for a second, um, can you explain to me what am I supposed to do right, if I want to charge my phone and listen to my podcasts <laughs> at the same time? <laughs> right. This is how angry and emotional we got about this. I, mean, I know we're addicted to our technology because I know people who keep buying iPhones and keep complaining about them. Okay? Someone today has walked into this room and said, excuse me, do you have a charger? No iPhone and iPhone, they don't work, but we still buy them because we want to be connected to people, man. I personally think that if someone releases a product and you don't like it, do you know what you should do? Don't buy it. <laughs> nah, don't buy it, man. Don't buy it, man. I've decided that basically like iPhones, right, are like relationships. That's all they are, they're the same thing, man. Because most people look at their phones, right? And they look at them and they'll be like, wow, it used to be quicker to turn this on. <laughs> But you don't upgrade your man, do you? You just work a bit longer. Just... The one thing that scares me about technology is the way young people are using it. Now, now I've got a daughter, I'm thinking about what technology's gonna look like when she grows up. Okay, so give me a cheer if you've got kids. <gasps> give me a cheer if they're teenagers. Yeah. Right, I bet they, someone just said, yeah. <laughs> are you afraid of how they're using the technology? Are you afraid? Because I'm a little bit afraid about how young people are using technology. I'm terribly afraid about this because the problem is is young people are getting things that were designed for adults. This is totally true. Now, I can understand how serious this is because when I I was a kid, when I was nine years old, for my birthday, right, I was given a filofax. (laughs) (laughs) A nine-year-old with a filofax. What was my mother thinking? Okay? No, because it had a section with the days of the week in it, right? It had a section with the weekends, and it had a section for meetings.
3: <laughs> Who
4: the fuck was I meeting? I'm nine years old, so this is what I worry now. Kids are trying to find the places they belong into, right? And they're trying to find people they can relate to. They're using social media, they're using their phones to do this, okay? This scares me because this could get them into trouble, okay? If you've got a young daughter, okay? This is how a young straight man would flirt with a young straight woman. The woman would wake up in the morning, look at the phone, and it would be like, good morning, dick. (laughs) (laughs) That's how they do it, you know? And she'd be like, oh, he's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a young man, uh, and you're into it, you'll have probably, by the time you're 16 years old, seen thousands of vaginas. Literally, because they're all on the internet. Again, this scares me. Okay? But did you also know teenagers are having fewer children? It's totally true. Teenage pregnancy has gone downhill, even though these kids are finding each other online. Okay? now I can explain this, because if you're a young man, and you've seen those vaginas, and you've seen thousands of them, but you've only seen them on the internet... That means you've only seen them from the front.
3: <laughs>
4: it's, it's not enough information. <laughs> right? So let's say you go into some girl's house, right? and you get down to business, right? and you get what I would call the bird's eye view. <laughs> you don't know what to do. That's why You're all looking at me like, what are you talking about, Athena? Let me use an analogy. <laughs> Have you ever been to a new Ikea? <laughs> it's very hard to find the entrance, isn't it? <laughs> You'll be driving around for half an hour. Okay. <laughs> then when you get in, you can't find what you're looking for. And then when you find what you're looking for, you can't wait to get out. Yeah, that was a really bad analogy. <laughs> about like inexperienced teenagers and in early ejaculation. That's why I'm not getting pregnant. Anyway, the point is is that people are using technology to connect to other people, but we're not connecting in real life. I got there in the end. <laughs> I got there in the end, didn't I? But yeah, let me go back to myself. I've, I'm in all these different groups and really I just want to be in one group, which is the kind of, I think you're a cool person. Am I a cool person? Let's hang out. Which is the best group to be in, I think. Welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis Waits.
0: I've been really interested in how women find their niche and find their way in the world. Increasingly, since I've started listening to a podcast by Elizabeth Day called How to Fail. Has anyone else heard this podcast? Yeah, it's really, really good, and I got asked to do it, so I thought oh, I should listen to an episode, and I found myself binging a lot. I was so fascinated by it because she interviews successful people like Farrah Store, Phoebe Waller Bridge, Dolly Alton. and it's to inspire us as we listen to go. Oh, they seem like everything's really easy, but of course, here's all the times they failed. First of all, I listened to three or four episodes. Uh, featuring women, and then I listened to some episodes featuring men, and I found that so fascinating, uh, because the women were all saying, well, of course, I wasn't very talented at all, and I'm, I'm not very talented at all, really. It's just all luck and hard work. But when I say hard work, I haven't really worked very hard. I mean, I sort of... I mean, it's just luck, isn't it? It's luck, and, and I mean, I mean, have I, have I succeeded? I mean, really? I mean, yes, I did win the Man Booker Prize, but, I mean, <laughs> did I... Did I, did I put myself into that book? Not really, not really. I don't think I have succeeded yet. I mean, what you see a success, I see a failure. And then you see, there's a guy called James Frey who wrote a book called A Million Little Pieces in 2003. Now, you may remember James Frey because James Frey published this book as a memoir. And this is what James Frey said. He said, yeah... I wrote this book, and uh, I mean, firstly, I can't think of any times I failed. Because what's a failure, really? I mean, it's not, I don't even know what that means. But secondly, when I wrote Million Dollar Pieces, I wrote one draft. I sent it to publishers, and they were like... But it's got loads of grammatical errors and spelling mistakes. And I was like, well, that's just what it is. That's what I want it to be. I can write good grammar if I want. I don't want it. That's what I want it to be. It's first draft. Take it or not. They're like, well, this is brilliant. This is fucking brilliant. (laughs) Well, I'm not changing it. If you want my fucking brilliant book, you got (laughs) to it. So he just published it like it was. Because that's what I wanted it to be. I'm not doing any fucking second drafts nobody, why should I?
3: <laughs>
0: so they published that and won a bunch of prizes and everyone said it was amazing. Can you imagine if I went to a publisher and said, oh, I'd like to publish this book called the Guilty Feminist and they went, oh, well, there are some spelling mistakes we'd like to, and, some, and I went, I don't want you to! It's a first draft, I want you to publish the first draft so everyone can see my spelling mistakes! <laughs> They would just say, well, it's been very nice to meet you. What? They would be like, that's the end of the meeting. They'd just be like, bye now, because that's ridiculous. And what are you talking about? I mean, I understand if it's like some kind of E. e. Cummings thing with small... Letters, I suppose. But
3: really, <laughs>
0: I don't really, though. I don't really understand that. It's a, like sort of this affectation of, you know, just take it because just brilliant. Anyway, it's the memoir of being a crack addict and, like, he hit a police car and he got arrested and he got put in jail and it's all about this sort of... Actually, I shouldn't say crack addict. I think you should say addicted person. A person who was addicted to crack, but he pitched it as a memoir of a crack addict, so I'm, that's why I'm saying that. He came on Oprah to talk about it. It's an amazing memoir, amazing memoir. And then somebody wanted to write an article about it, so they looked for a mugshot of him to, you know, as part of this piece that they were printing, and they found there was no mugshot, because it turned out, oh, he hadn't really been arrested at all. And they found the police officer involved in the case. They said, oh, it was sort of like a ding; it was just like a prank. I think he kind of backed into a police car, and they said, and we took him down to the station. He said it was terribly pleasant, and it was all fine, and he was very apologetic about it. And then we just let him go. No, he wasn't arrested. It turned out that he had made up huge swathes of his memoir. And so Oprah Winfrey got him back on, didn't tell him why. And when he was on, she went, excuse me, you've lied to us all. And he went, oh, oh, no, no. And then... (laughs) (laughs) And then she got at his publisher, and his publisher said, well, I'm really sorry, I just didn't think to... Verify, I didn't do my due diligence. Yeah, it's meant to be a memoir, apparently lots of it's made up. And he went, I never said it was all true. Well, you didn't, but when you say memoir, (laughs) people assume, I never said I didn't change the details. (laughs) But the details are the facts that make up a memoir. I don't understand what you're saying. Anyway, so she said, so in a way, that was sort of a public, a very public failure, wasn't it? He said, it wasn't a failure. Because I'm a provocateur. I never wanted everybody to like me. In my work, I want people to hate me. I want half the people to hate me. I'm like J.D. Salinger. I'm provocative. (laughs) I want people to hate me. Only a white man. (laughs) Only a white straight man could wake up in the morning and go, not
3: enough people hate me.
0: When was the last time a woman went on Twitter and went, oh, there don't seem to be enough people hating me. I'll have to write a provocative novel and lie to everyone and then be revealed on Oprah so that I can feel the true ire of the world. Imagine a gay person waking up and going, I need more countries I can't visit because of capital punishment. Do you know what I mean? I just I'm saying, like, it just, it's such an arrogance to say, I've gone out of my way to make a piece of art to make people hate me. Some people do hate me, but they have no influence or power. So it's like their hate doesn't exist. (laughs) I need people I rate to hate me. That's what he's saying. What I mean is I need men to hate me. I need men I respect to hate me because I've lived in this cocoon of privilege and love. I want to experience what it's like to be one of the minority groups or a woman. That is what the guy is saying. And I just looked at that and went, my God, you're trying to fit in less in the world. And then he went on to publish, like, he's published like 10 more fucking novels and they keep publishing them. And, and he keeps saying, and it's a first draft and I'm not clearly he still does that. He goes, I know how to indent a paragraph, but I'm not gonna. Because why should I? When I want people to hate me. <laughs> and I was just like, how is Elizabeth Day being so nice to this man? So then I listened to the one with Sebastian Folks, who wrote Birdsong and she gave him this lovely introduction said he was one of the loveliest she always does a really quite a long introduction about who the person she's interviewing is really charming introduction saying he's one of the loveliest men in publishing he's so charming he's written all these books he's won prizes she does this really long introduction she mentions all of his books she mentions that he's written a saga that's birdsong and at the end of this long introduction welcome Sebastian folks he says birdsong isn't a saga and she says, oh, well, I, I would call it a saga. Well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> a saga is a Norse or Icelandic poem. Or well, you know, one of those Judith Kranz books with a red cover about some poor woman who's been assaulted in the first few pages and then her daughter opens a dress shop years later. <laughs> That's a saga. My book isn't a saga. And she said, oh, well, I would call it a saga. Well, you'd be wrong. Do you want to start again? <laughs> It's her podcast and to her credit, she says, no, no, I'll leave that in. I presume, because she knows he's going to look like a dick and she's going to look like a charming person. And then he goes on to explain how he hasn't failed at all. In the listen to the podcast, it's absolutely amazing. He says, Well, I don't know what you mean by fail, I haven't failed. I haven't failed, I don't think that's a failure. She said, well, you set out to write sort of one book and then you said at the time you wanted it to be like this and actually it was more of a satire and something yes, but it wasn't a failure. I have mean, no more copies than any other book I've ever written. I mean, it's the only one that's, you know, won this significant prize. So how could you call that a failure? Well, I, I, no, I, I wasn't calling it a failure. I was just more saying that this podcast is about failing. <laughs> <laughs> any examples of that? I don't know what you mean. I mean, I suppose there are times when one starts to do one thing and then when perhaps, it, oh, you know, when one, one is developing one's thing, uh, when one, one discovers that one is actually doing something that one didn't realise one was doing. And I mean, in that way, one is... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm too posh to finish this sentence. <laughs> I just... Um, uh, uh, uh. Uh, I mean, you could say I failed to finish the sentence, I suppose, but at the Bullington Club, we didn't call that a failure. We called it a hangover. (laughs) And then at the end of the podcast, I kid you not, he says, uh, she says, well, thank you so much, Sebastian, and it's just been wonderful to have you, and we've learnt so much. It's been such a delight. And he says, chop out that thing about the saga, will you? (laughs) I mean, fuck you, and fuck you, and fuck you. So my great dream now is to meet Elizabeth Day... Off air, buy her four or five very strong cocktails (laughs) and then say, tell me about the men who have never failed. (laughs) Thank you very much. Hello, Guilty Feminists. Exciting news if you live in the United States of America or Canada. We are going to Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, Toronto, Vancouver, San Francisco, Seattle and Los Angeles. If you want to know the date we are coming to you, go to guiltyfeminist.com. It's all there. If you are thinking, well, I don't live in America, don't worry, we're coming to you, Manchester. To the podcast festival on the 5th of November. And we're coming to you, Dublin, for the podcast festival too on Wednesday, the 6th of November. On the 26th of November, I'm doing something very special, an evening with Emma Thompson, Greg Wise and guests at Barbican Hall. I am hosting it. So exciting. It's a tie-in with the last Christmas film and book. The book's proceeds go to charity and I have written a piece for the book. There's lots of much more famous people than me that have written a piece about their Christmas there too. So come along to that. You're going to have an incredible night and you're going to be able to get a very, very beautiful book, 26th of November. On the 28th of November, Thursday the 28th, I will be at Intelligence Squared with Yvette Cooper and Daisy Goodwin to discuss some of the inspiring women's speeches in Yvette's new book. And on Tuesday, the 3rd of December, we'll be back in Manchester at the Manchester Palace for the Secret Policeman's Tour. That's right. The Guilty Feminist and Amnesty International team up to bring back the legendary Secret Policeman comedy brand. We are going to have an incredible night for you. If you want to know what kind of night, you can look on our Guilty Feminist feed because we've already done two incredible Secret Policeman's Tour shows this year in London and Edinburgh. So you'll be able to hear highlights from those to know what the show is going to be like. It really will be something special. So please come along. Details of all those shows are at guiltyfeminist.com. Go there right now. Pause this. Go there. Get yourself some tickets and then listen to the rest of the show. Our first guest is the founder... ...of Out the Box, a hub for young creatives and entrepreneurs... ...please welcome Renee Davis! Hello, darling. Our second guest is a stand-up comedian... Uh, whose debut show, Heidi versus Sharks, was critically acclaimed and had all sorts of hyper-exciting buzz about it at this year's Edinburgh Festival, and you can see soon at the Soho Theatre. Put your hands together as she joins us at the mic. It's Heidi Regan. <clears throat>
5: Very uh, excited to be here, um, my name's Heidi. I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. I don't usually talk about myself on stage. I usually do like, silly, surreal stories or um, upsettingly graphic burlesque. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm trying to do more honest, uh, truthful stuff now um, and to tell you a bit about some of my uh, niches with the topic. Um, I'm Australian. I don't have many jokes about being Australian. I don't like to fall into easy stereotypes. Uh, We call them (laughs) stesatuzzers. Classic us. Uh, uh, I'm from um, Newcastle, which is just north of Sydney. It's actually named after the English Newcastle. We're actually twin cities. Uh, Fraternal, not identical. We get that all the time. (laughs) Um, It's a beach town. Very classic Australia. Um, I wasn't a classic... Beach babe, I, like, burn if I even hear the word sun. Even if it's spelled S-O-N, it works for homophones. And <laughs> that's how harsh our climate is. Um, but I've, I've been living in the UK uh, ten years now and I thought I was starting to get a bit homesick because I kept banging on to all my English friends about how much I missed, like, the beautiful beaches, like, the long, beautiful beaches. You can walk the entire length without it making your bad knee play up. not like the beaches here now or um, the amazing Sydney nightlife where you can stay out till past midnight without getting (laughs) sleepy or grumpy or overwhelmed with existential dread about your years of wasted potential (laughs) Uh, until my friend said to me, are you sure you miss Australia and you're not just someone in their 30s missing their early 20s which (laughs) happened to be when you're in Australia and I said, no I don't think so because I also miss like the friendly people um, specifically the friendly Aussie doctors who aren't always warning you about your decreasing fertility <laughs> <laughs> not like these rude English doctors always wanting to count your eggs it's like get your own <laughs> <laughs> and I miss out in Australia like the global financial crash hasn't happened yet and Obama's about to become president and fix everything <laughs> it's, it's a really hopeful place um, <laughs> I'm also gay, pre-gay, like 72, maybe 73%. I'm not sure the exact figure. I'm not a scientist. Uh, Gay people can't be scientists. Check your Bibles. Should should be under your chairs. Um, It took me uh, quite a long time to meet uh, anyone after I came out. Like, I'm not ashamed to say it took six years. I am ashamed to say it took ten years, which is the actual figure. (laughs) Thank you. So I rounded it down to the nearest six. It's like common maths practice if you have an awkward number like ten. I think. Um, I, uh, I kept telling myself it was uh, because like nearly all my friends were straight, so I found it quite hard to meet lesbians just out in the wild. Um, <laughs> And which, like, I felt quite sad about that, but also had a silver lining because it meant I could be quite delusional and just walk around assuming I was an amazing catch. It was just the statistics that were against me. Um, never had to do any like self-analysis like my straight friends were doing and be like, I could also be a boring asshole. <laughs> uh, instead, I'd walk around going like, Oh, she would adore me if only she wasn't straight. And then they'd say. No, I'm gay, you're just not my cup of tea. And I'd be like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> Fate is against us, don't, don't dwell on it. <laughs> nah. It seemed like you had to just go online. That was the only way I could meet anyone. And I was very bad online. I found it very confusing um, when I went on there. Um, every single profile I read, they all ended the same way on these like, lesbian dating sites where it said, and no, I don't want a threesome. and Stop offering me threesomes. I'm sick of threesome requests. Uh, which apparently was quite a thing, that you'd think you are talking to someone single and it was just a couple trying to spice up their relationship. And I was like, this is so sad. Like, I'm on here looking for love and I'm just going to get these sleazy threesome requests joined. And it was disgusting. Months passed, not a single threesome request. <laughs> I was like, I don't want a threesome, but I don't want to be apparently the only lesbian in Greater London not being offered a threesome. like... Just because I don't want to go to your party doesn't mean I don't want an invite to your stupid party. <laughs> uh, so I just changed my uh, profile to say things like uh, "good at multitasking," uh, uh, works well in a team, but equally able to busy self if left alone. That kind of thing. Um, and I have met someone now, lovely couple. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> very nicely, just one, very boring. Uh, you've been very lovely, thank you. <laughs>
0: Um, so, tell us a little bit about
6: you, Renee. So, I'm Renee Davis. I'm a Bromie. Um, you'll hear my accent come out a lot when I talk, because I get quite passionate about things. And I am a... Well, I have been a journalist, that's my background. And I'm the founder of Out The Box, which is a social enterprise hub for young creative entrepreneurs. And that's been going for about four years now. Great. I was saying to you earlier how the journalism and out-of-the-box go hand-in-hand. Hand because when I was at university, I was doing a undergraduate in media and journalism. And my background beforehand was heavily in media, and I wanted to be a writer, so I picked journalism to go with that as a joint honours. So on my course, I was always keen to write about, you know music, hip-hop, anything to do with the culture that I was into or came from, I was always talking about it. And my lecturers didn't always understand the points that I was trying to make or where I came from. Mm. So I just felt dumb on my course. And I thought, what am I doing? Should I be here? You know, what can I do to kind of enhance my craft as a young journalist so I started a blog called out the box because I felt boxed in at university and on Mm. my course because I didn't feel like I was allowed to speak about the things that I was passionate about so it started off as a personal blog and I just write whatever how I was feeling how my week went and then I started to interview people about the things that they were passionate about and the projects that they were starting I sat on it for a couple of years, and then the riots in 2011 happened, and I noticed that there were so many young people that were looting and doing all these these things, and I just thought to myself, the media don't realize how many of these young people are talented, they just don't have an outlet, or they don't have a platform to voice these talents. That really spurred me on to continue with it and pick it up again. So I started interviewing people that I knew because I knew people that were starting clothing lines, people that were musicians, people that were entrepreneurs. And I said, I'm going to use their voice and put it on this platform to show everyone what young people can do and the potential that they have in the hope that this will further their skills. From the stories, I thought that it wasn't enough and I started to hold events where I would ask other young pioneers to come and share their journeys of failure and success and how they got there. And to be really candid about the things that other people might want to know about and learn. So it will be kind of like this, not as big. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, we started doing the events at Google for
0: Startups, which has just been rebranded to. Yeah, we've been going ever since. Wonderful. And so people come along, they learn from each other. You have inspirational speakers and people can connect and network and hook up. And there's presumably lots of sole traders come along, lots of freelancers, lots yeah. of people who are looking yeah. for connections with other people.
6: Yeah, and, and people to create with a with network. limited companies as well. Um, and what, another thing that I've started to do is workshops where we actually teach skills for young people to actually go out and use. So this whole year we've been doing a series called Behind the Box, where we have young practitioners come in and actually teach everything that they know to people who might want to go into different areas of the creative industries. So we've covered fascia, we've covered music, we've covered filmmaking, we recently had one in media and journalism, and we recently had one in digital marketing. And another thing that I try and do is to plug a young person or a young creative into a person that's come to speak so they can shadow them for a day or two and then learn on the go as well and I find that that's been really helpful so it's something that I want to continue. And what's your gender balance? It's, do you know what, it's mainly female which is, I am surprised but I'm not surprised and I think, so for instance the last workshop that we had it was run by a young lady who runs a digital marketing agency, her name's Patrice Camille, she runs a digital marketing agency called Pink Ship and her branding has Pink dark ship. Pink ship. Ship, S-H-I-P. Ship, yeah. I thought it was like pink shit.
0: No! Was like, that's Anna. <laughs> no. What do you sell? Pink ship. <laughs> no.
6: Smells of roses.
0: <laughs>
6: <laughs> but the branding that she uses is dark pink. And I feel like that deterred a lot of guys because we had all females and it wasn't just directed at females, but we had an all-female attendance. And it's fine by me, but I will say... In general, and on a whole, we do have more females than males. The guys do come along, but you know, there's always a lot of females.
0: And it seems like an amazing space for young black collaborative yeah. artists. Yeah. Um, did you start it for a black network?
6: Yes, and no.
0: I originally reached out
6: to the networks that were around me and where I saw the gaps and where I saw the need, and that was with young black people because the creative industries, it's so hard to get your foot through the door if you don't know someone that already works in there or already has like quite a high position in a company or something. So I thought, no, this is nonsense. We're talented. I know so many young, talented creatives that need to be put on a platform. Mm. But that's not to say if we have an event or a workshop that somebody of another race can't come along and learn because it's, it's there for everybody.
4: Um, Have you found through doing this that you've met more kind of social enterprise slash entrepreneurs? So you've had to get your own new network for people who've started networks. Does that make sense? Or have you found yourself a bit isolated? It's amazing because people always
6: say to me, how do you find your speakers? How do you find other people to come and teach your workshops? And it always does happen because they've actually been in attendance at one of the events and, and I'll get speaking to them and I realise you have a big community behind you and, you know, you have a big following in what you do. Come and speak at the next one. So I'm never short sure of finding people to come
0: and actually share their expertise. It's rolled, doesn't it, it, a network? It's definitely People, a people contact you, people see you doing something, they invite you to there, then you meet someone else. I met you at Lenny Henry's 60th birthday party. Yes, so as, random. <laughs> as, as thrown by Comic Relief. Because you were eating cake don't mention that (laughs) to me no because I there is no no need to focus on the fact that I was in the corner with a piece of Lenny's cake (laughs) my friend um,
6: played Lenny in Danny and the Human Zoo I don't know if anyone saw it when it came on the BBC on BBC One so my friend invited me along to go with him we've been friends since we were 11 so we're like really close And I was hungry. So I was eating, you know, the canapes all night and it's not enough for me. You know, I'm very, I love my food. So I saw cake. So I thought, I want some cake. Where do I get the cake? That's when I spotted you.
0: (laughs) We, Renee and I were brought together through a love of cake. cake. So you approached me and where'd you get that cake? Yeah. And And I was like, I told you my sauce. Yeah. It was like Shawshank Redemption. Uh, (laughs) I was very much the Morgan Freeman, the one who could get you anything. And I was like, I'll get you cake, don't worry. In fact, did I give you my cake and go and get some more? I feel like Someone, I'm... someone bought some in the end, so we would just, just oh, eat okay. cake. I definitely gave my first piece of cake to someone else because I didn't think it was big enough. <laughs> so I, I, I acted generously because I was like, i got this tiny piece of cake. I was like, I don't think so. So I was like, did you get cake? <laughs> and then I went back to the tray and got myself a better piece of cake. I hope I didn't do that to you, Renee. I don't think no, I did. No, I think it was a man I did that to, so that was fine.
3: LAUGHTER
0: um, and so then we sat in the corner huddled connected. up eating the cake. Yeah. And there was another piece of cake on the table and both of us were like, is that yours? Is that yours? No, no, no. Do you, don't, do you want some more? No, 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 no. And we both went, no, we don't want any more. <laughs> and then a waiter came and took it away and we were both like, God damn it!" <laughs> um, so we just met there and everything you were telling me, I was like, oh, this is so fascinating and so necessary because there is, let's be clear, a posh white network mm. that operates that no matter what... A young person wants to do, if you're posh and white, the truth of the matter is that someone at Christmas will say, well, of course Toby wants to go into the law, and it's very difficult to get a pupillage. Darling, is Richard still at that chambers in the city? Yes, he is, he is, isn't he? He's not retired, no. Well, Richard will sort you out, and Richard will definitely... Richard would love to take Toby, and if he doesn't, well, there's always Alexander. And, <laughs> I mean, Alexander's chambers, I don't think they're what they were, but it's a start, isn't it? It's the main thing as you get on that ladder. And no matter what that kid wants to do, it's sort of, you know... Yes, I mean... Well, wasn't Sebastian's best man at MI5. Uh, it... Uh, <laughs> it and it's, there's somehow... If you're in the room with posh people, somebody knows somebody knows somebody, and that's how it works... And now, even more because of austerity, to get those first, you know, I've been to charity things where they've auctioned off two weeks' work experience at a broadsheet. And there's lots of posh people like bidding on work experience at a broadsheet to get their kid in the door. But it goes for something like £2,000 because people are drunk. And you just go, well, that really blocks out people who, firstly, aren't at the event, secondly, don't have £2,000. Thirdly, don't drink too much. And, you know,
4: <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. Like, I mean, my personal experience is that I was always, I came up from a very academic family and that my parents were like, you've got to get your degrees, you've got to get your professional qualifications, you've got to get a great job. But I didn't understand, it's not, it's not just what you know... It's who you know. Oh, so much. It's massively a part of it. And that's kind of, I would say comedy's the second part of my career. And I've learned that. And in fact, most of my comedy opportunities haven't come from being amazing on stage and someone saying, oh my God, come and do my gig. It's come from just bumping into people and Mm. them saying, oh, okay, you seem like a nice person, come and do my gig. And so what is really good about what you do is that you not only teach people about the practical skills, you teach them about You have to be in a place like this to learn those skills and the importance of leaving your house. And even if you're introverted, how it just like leave that at the door and at least just try and meet new people and try and get your business card into the right person's hand. As well as learning how to use InDesign or learning how to program,
0: you still need to have somebody who knows you've got that skill who can give you a job. Mm. And in that dynamic environment that you're creating as well, it's a lot of it's about the energy of the environment. And not everybody who meets somebody can do that work. So if mm. you create the space where that's what the space is for, even if you're a bit shy, even if you've had quite a marginalised experience in life, or you've come from a home where you haven't been... Some people, you know, you just might have a very overwhelming dad or something, and that means you don't speak up very well. In which case, in that environment that you're creating, Renee, this is what it's for, no matter who you are, you're there, you can speak up. Did you find Heidi coming to London? You've got various (laughs) strings to your bow. So you were getting into comedy writing, you were getting into comedy stand-up, you were trying to find your place in the gay community, as you talked about, in your stand-up. How do you find connecting into groups?
5: With what you're talking about right now, um, like, I moved over here... 10 years ago and I had never wanted to do stand-up in my life and I was a comedy writer and when I moved over I'd had a beer work in Australia but I moved over and everyone said you can't get your writing out unless you know the right people and have an in with something and so for seven years I didn't do that because I had intense stage fright. I also had my mum, she's English but they moved out when she was 12 to Australia because her parents were living in near Manchester and her dad said there's no place for the working class, like no opportunity, let's go to Australia. So my mum had this kind of chip on her shoulder about the class system and that. So when I moved over, she would send me articles in daytime Australia that were all titled You'll Never Make It Anywhere If You Didn't Go To Oxford. <laughs> but I would wake up to these and I was doing this job for five years where I had to get up at 4am and it was really, in winter, it was really like tough to motivate yourself out of bed and my motivation was I'd open my phone and say, you will never make it because... <laughs> and, uh, but... and I was like, eventually I rang mum said, you are doing far more than any entrenched class system to demotivate me to do anything. Please stop emailing me. Uh, but yes, eventually uh, the reason I did presumably stand... please stop emailing me about that? Not just no, never, I'd never, never email me made one mistake, you would go... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, eventually I uh, couldn't get any writing work here for yeah, seven years so then... I thought i've got one last chance i'll do stand up to kind of get my riding out there, so I was utterly petrified, but that's so what I got and as soon as I got into stand-up, my opportunities went so much further, because you yeah, meet sa-
4: people. What you're saying is entirely true, so for any budding comedy writers, like, you know, I'm not an Oxford Oxbridge yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get into writing without doing stand-up, but it's once you become a stand-up comedian, all the class issues, all the education issues just go out the window, yeah. because you're literally standing up in front of human beings and making them laugh, so that cannot be denied. Yeah, like, yeah, No one can deny that your ability to do that, but it's unfortunate that we have to prove it, whereas with other people there's like an assignment They can do it. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
0: yeah. So you've opened the door to comedy writing through doing stand-up. And that's a big old leap, isn't it? Because for
5: many people, they would think that was the scariest thing you could possibly do. Yeah, it was. I really didn't like it. (laughs) You're really good at it. Uh, Well, it took me a long time to get over the fear, like a good year before I didn't want to poop a lot. (laughs) So <laughs> you don't seem nervous now yeah sometimes I am but I'm a lot better now so yeah and yeah. I'm naturally deadpan on stage so people go you're so calm and I'm like I'm screaming inside <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: do, do you think those years of mentally preparing yourself to doing it
5: actually contributed to maybe you making you better stand up I think uh, like because I started as soon as I decided to but I think all the years of writing meant I had a different structure to my stuff and I was just Older, so I had more things to say and had more bitterness and fear. <laughs> Are you listening, everybody? If you're
0: older and have bitterness and fear, go into stand up comedy. Yeah. Heidi Regan style, that's it. really worked out for her. So, and if you have stage fright, you could be Heidi Regan. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, but don't be nothing... Heidi Regan. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, no competition. <laughs> All right, sorry. She's filled the niche. Yeah. There's no need for any more. Renee? Do you think sometimes you have to switch up what you're doing? So, like, Hardy was a very talented comedy writer, but she wasn't getting the breaks because she didn't fit the bill of what a comedy writer looked like. She wasn't, like, a,
5: um, a, an Oxbridge lad. I mean, um, I'm not... I just want to say I'm not saying I didn't get my stuff because I didn't... It was more just, like, making the connections within when you're yeah. just someone going, emailing randomly. I'm not saying they were going... Where'd you go to uni? Get out. No, no, no. But it is harder. I know that. Because I did go to Oxford. But the. On the. <laughs> uh... <laughs>
0: my life has been a breeze and i highly recommend being me no i i when i came out when i came out my male counterparts there just seemed to be a process where they would just get into rooms and their scripts would be read and i was writing with a writing partner and they kept saying this is a brilliant script and this one's gonna go and just and then right at the last hurdle when actually it came to putting the money up to make it into like a sitcom yeah It would go to two guys I knew who'd gone to Oxford. Not the same guys. If you're listening and you know me, not you, it was the other guys. (laughs) Sometimes it was you. Um, And the guys seemed to get opportunity after opportunity. Even if they had pilots that didn't do very well or shows that didn't do very well, they kept getting opportunities. So even though I'm white, I'm Oxbridge and I have a lot of privilege, I do understand that it is harder if you don't look like what they think a writer looks like, especially like a comedy writer. They do have... And also the kinds of stories you're telling, because, like, obviously who we are influences
4: the kind of stories you write, and there's an assumption that, like, what we write about is niche, you know? And it's like, this is ridiculous. Like, we all have a race, we're all somewhere on the gender spectrum or whatever, so whatever we write about should be instantly relatable, whatever, but unless it's coming out of a posh white male voice, it's Mm -hmm. considered to be, oh, we don't know if people go for this.
0: But I think that that is changing now because a lot of the hit shows that have come out are there for the thirsty audience. Mm. So Fleabag, Catastrophe, Chewing Gum, Game Face, you know, you can probably think of others that are coming
6: out. Just oh, I just as well? Oh,
0: yeah. um, I don't know if you've watched Famalam.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One. So one of my friends, is starring in that, Tom Mucci, and he started by doing um, comedic social media videos. He was on Vine. Yeah, he was on yeah, Vine. Yeah, on Vine. And... Again, he didn't necessarily go the traditional route, but because of the talent, the raw talent that was there, you, can't, you have to work really hard, but you can't deny that if it gets in front of the eyes and is of the right people
0: yeah. yeah so those connections are so important so sometimes you have to switch up what you're doing you always need to get into rooms with the right people and find allies but i think the world is changing there's an understanding now that there is a thirst for diversity that there really wasn't 10 years ago and much bigger now than there was five years ago so plug into some of these places if you think out the box sounds right for you either uh, to come along as a speaker or to come along to learn and to meet people uh, you can find Out the Box on out Instagram. The box. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Out the Box UK. Out of the
6: Box UK. Out the Box, not of the. People always say Out of the Box. It's Out the Box
0: UK. It's way cooler. It doesn't need it off. <laughs> it doesn't need the off. And you might think that's bad grammar, but Renee doesn't care. care. <laughs> she doesn't care. She's a first draft, that she doesn't care. <laughs> you have
3: been
0: listening to the Guilty Feminist with me and our very special guests Renee Davis and Heidi Regan The recording engineer was Chris Sharp was by Mark Hodge The producer was Tom Salinsky for The Spontaneity Shop Thanks to Zoe, Jacob, Sally and everyone at King's Place as well as all of you for listening For more information about this and other episodes visit guiltyfabulous.com We should say today is International Men's Day. That's right. The answer to the question posed every International Women's Day, well, when's International Men's Day? Today. Is today. Are you enjoying it? Da- David, are you still here? Yep. Good. Are you enjoying your special day? You're very, you're, you're optimistic, David. That's what I like about you.